You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today I'm very excited to bring you an exclusive new story. Brand new ETF just launched that I believe is challenging some of the biggest players in the private REIT space. Joining me today is David Auerbach, Managing Director at Armada ETF Advisors. David, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks for having me. It's great to be here on Fed Day and uh, like how you phrase that. Uh, I, I hope we can't shake things up here. Oh, I think you're shaking things up. Uh, or let's uh, let me let me say let's shake things up, David. Let's let's not, you know, let's let's tell it bluntly like it is. You know, the the lay of the landscape. I think a lot of our our listeners, our viewership, you know, they understand that there's, you know, it's a, a shall we say an interesting real estate market right now. Um, but let's not bury the lead. You launched a brand new ETF this week. Very exciting new product, uncharted territory, which I think is. That's the Armada way, right? Is launching something new. Tell us about your new ETF. Sure. So as you as you can see up behind me on the screen here, we have uh, the new ticker on our screen, PRVT. We launched the private real estate strategy via liquid REITs ETF. Quite a mouthful there, huh? Uh, the ticker is PRVT. <laughs> Excuse me. What it is is that we took the portfolios and allocations of the largest private REITs that are on the market. We know who those sponsors are. Blackstone, Starwood, KKR. And you take their allocation based off of portfolio type, geography. And what we did was we took 50 publicly traded REITs and basically replicated those portfolios based off of geography, portfolio type. And the goal at the end of the day is to bring a lower cost, more liquid ETF vehicle to market that matches, again, these private REIT portfolios assembled by great management teams and great companies. But again, bring it a more liquid, cheaper product, as well as a product that's priced on a daily basis. Because we're an ETF, there's a bid-ask spread during market hours. You know what the stock is worth. And so we're just what we're saying is we're bringing that private REIT allocation at current market valuations. Yeah, it, David, it almost, if I can make a rough analogy, it almost reminds me of like some of the hedge replication ETFs, hedge fund strategy replication ETFs, roughly in the sense that it's not the exact same thing, but they're, you know, using uh, models, or in this case, you know, you can, you know what the holdings are to recreate something that roughly approximates how that private fund will perform, but at a much, lower cost. And then what that introduces is, well, now that private, yeah, let's call it the private alternative now has a pretty big hurdle, which is they're going to need to then outperform the liquid product, the ETF, by a pretty big margin to justify the increased expenses, right? Am I yeah, seeing it correctly? Is that, I mean, it, that's that's my take. I mean, from a high level, we're charging 59 basis points for our ETF and the going in charge for one of those vehicles averages like, you know, one and a quarter, one and a half percent plus additional fees over the course of the life of the investment of those private vehicles. The investor is paying on average about 3.6 percent a year in fees. So think about how much you've paid after, let's say, year seven, year eight. 
versus a 59 basis point ETF. That's a lot of savings at the end investor's pocket. Now, I do want to stress that this is a great complement to that private REIT portfolio. As I said, remember, these guys have assembled great assets in great markets with great management teams. They have boots on the ground. They clearly know a lot of things that, frankly, the average investor doesn't know. And so if we're able to glean some, some wisdom from these guys that helps us shape our portfolio, that's great. You know, that you mentioned about where the data comes from. And for us, we're lucky because the companies do publish quarterly 10 Qs mm -hmm. that highlight every asset in the portfolio. So we can add it up and say, okay, residential, including single family rentals is 53% of the portfolio. Industrial is 25%. Right. Net lease or gaming is 7%. And then all the other sectors, let's say, add up to around 3% or so each. But then let's say next quarter they file and that 53% number of resi goes to, let's say, 40%. And they pick up their exposure either in industrial, some of these other sectors. Well, then it begs to another question. Why? Is it because of a change in thesis at the private REIT vehicle? Is it because they're selling assets to fund redemptions? There's just a lot of questions that, you know, are raised as you see those portfolio dynamics change. Yeah, and and you know it has to be said, B REITs, some of these private REITs have been in the news a lot recently, you know, front page of the Wall Street Journal in that they are hitting their quarterly or monthly firewalls, their redemption limits. So plenty of investors have gotten into these private REITs and it must be said plenty of investors want out. Now, I don't have anything against illiquid investments. You know, I own illiquid investments. I also own ETFs. I, you know, I like it all. Uh, but investors who are invested in these illiquid private REITs or any type of private alternative investment need to understand that at the end of the day, they are illiquid. I always say you can't be half pregnant. You can't be half illiquid, right? If you sometimes you're illiquid, then you're essentially illiquid. You know, but but the other thing, even putting aside the liquidity issues, putting aside the fees, and you know, active management it has costs associated with it. Uh, but the other issue to me is that publicly traded REITs are trading at a discount, right? So there's just this intrinsic right now. This is uh, what June of 2023. Right now, there's this uh, intrinsic advantage, I would say, that you have, or that funds like yours have that are investing in publicly traded REITs because you get a discount, whereas these private REITs, they're still generally priced at a premium. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's basically, you know, from a very high level, the average REIT is trading at, let's say, a 20 to 25% discount to NAV. Mm -hmm. Currently, the private REITs are trading, you know, anywhere from an 8 to 10% premium. You know, again, it depends on the vehicle. But if you look at our portfolio that we've assembled, our portfolio as a whole, you know, is trading at around an 8% discount to NAV. We're assuming like, let's say a 5.8%, 5.7% cap rate on our portfolio. And I think that's a key distinguishing feature that we need to focus on here. Because again, if we use Blackstone as the example, when you look at the amount of money that they raised during COVID coming out of COVID and how quickly they were deploying those assets to, you know, deploying that AUM to acquire assets, it was almost very similar to like what Amazon was doing in the world of industrial. Mm 
Amazon was taking down any and all space anywhere that they possibly could, really kind of not thinking about the price and the long-term implications. We may turn the space back. We don't know if we need the space. We know we need it now. Do we call that the, the spray and pray approach to I like acquisitions? <laughs> I like that. Well, Blackstone kind of did the same thing. Yeah. They deployed a lot of money very quickly. They bought And who, some- I mean, who, David, who can blame them when, you know, when clients are chasing after me, I'm running down the block. They're chasing after me, throwing hundred dollar bills in my direction and they just can't give me enough money. I mean, I, I can't blame B. Reed or, or Blackstone for But think about it from the company's perspective. You're American Campus or another one of these companies that they acquired. You yeah. know that Blackstone's always going to have a seat at that table because they have the firepower to do that deal. Mm-hmm. But what happened was they were going out there acquiring assets, call it a sub four cap rate in a much different environment when the tenure was trading at one and change versus where we're at today. It was a whole different world back then. And so the problem in 2023, where we sit right now, is that nothing is trading at a sub four cap rate. And so if they're valuing their portfolio at a number that is, let's say, far off from the current environment, you could see a massive reset in their NAV if they use that current market valuation. Mm -hmm. And and, well, I was going to say that kind of thing could cause a stampede for the exits, but there can't be a stampede for the exits because of the firewalls. So that's the situation that some of these private REITs are in. And I mean, they, you know, I've, I've heard it said that they are sort of, these private REITs are sort of passing the test in the sense that this is a little bit of a period of, uh, I don't want to say turmoil, but stress in commercial real estate. And there isn't panic with these large asset managers. Generally, you know, I'm sure some investors are unhappy, but everyone's sort of surviving and they're 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 kind of working as they should, these private REITs, in the sense that, you know, there isn't a stampede towards the exits. But you'd be as an investor, you'd be better off, uh, certainly if you were able to recycle that money into some publicly traded REITs right now and get the same either the same exact assets or the very similar types of assets at a discount, right? You talk about distress and a great example, that's like New York office right now. And if you're an institutional investor and you're sitting on New York office REITs, what do you do? And there's two different camps. There's the, I'm not touching that with a 10 foot pole. You're crazy. That's the New York office is dead. I'm never getting back into it. But to the other side of wait a second, the Empire State Building is worth a couple of billion dollars and yet the stock is trading for $6 a share. The sum of the parts is greater than the whole of where the stock price is trading. And this could be a huge potential opportunity. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that New York office is a buy, sell, or hold or anything in particular, but if you, I know it's a drastic example and I use it in a lot of conversations that I have, but I say, think about the investor that bought American Airlines on September 17th, 2001, which is the day that the market reopened after 9-11. If you recall, the airlines, the hotels, the credit card guys, a lot of those stocks just got walloped because Mm -hmm. what had happened the prior week. And so for those investors that turned around and bought American Airlines for, let's say, sub $2 a share, think about what they looked like five years later once that recovery fully took place and American was back to normal. You know, that too could become 20 over a period of time. So I'm not saying, I'm not trying to equate New York office to what happened in 9-11, but for those that don't mind a little bit of, let's say, pain and noise, 
you know, buying a stock at $5 a share, thinking that there's only one New York office, eventually it should bounce back. There could be opportunity here. And that's 25, five years from now. Again, you're going to be happy you took that pain trade for the rot. And now let's let's turn to your ETF. And, you know, this this is a cool story for me. I mean, a trip down memory lane and I'll keep it brief. I was covering the ETF beat, you know, 14, 13, 14 years ago at ETF database. That's really where I cut my teeth in financial, uh, you know, covering the financial industry. And we loved ETF launches back then. We ended up selling ETF database, but now here I am 13, 14 years later. I still love ETFs. I still have them in my portfolio, even though I cover the private side so much now. Uh, there's just so much intrinsic value in the ETF structure. And whenever that structure and that wrapper is kind of pointed in a new direction or covering a new asset class, or, you know, really we're getting to the point where usually it's covering a niche within a niche, but that's, that's how it's supposed to work. Right. And, well, and so I, I, I'm just thinking how many, how many ETFs were there when you were covering that beat? I mean, again, a, a couple of hundred maybe back then, Versus the 3,500 plus funds that are available on the market today. It was a whole right. different universe back then. Right. You know, for, for us in the world of REITs, <clears throat> there's a handful of thematic sector-based ETFs inside the REIT industry. There's a couple of, let's say, active REIT funds that are out there. There's also you know, your 2X levered, 3X levered type funds. There's your global funds, your ex-US global funds. But really, it's it's become, as you mentioned, a thematic of a thematic. It's it's mm -hmm. getting so far spread out, and there's so much for investors to choose from. And but so David, David, uh, yeah. to, to the exciting thing though, to me is, I I feel like it used to be niches competing with niches or a new twist within the same theme. But now what I'm seeing happen, like back to the hedge strategy replication ETFs, they are ETFs competing ultimately with private products that are non-ETFs. And that's what I think your ETF here is doing, right? It's not really competing with other ETFs. I mean, I'm sure it is in a way, but it actually, hopefully for you, will be getting some of the, the B-REIT money or some of the money that's otherwise flowing into some of these private REITs. Could we actually look a little, I guess, under the hood sure, of, sure, of, of your new ETF of, of PRVT? So to, to begin, this is an actively managed ETF. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. And when I say active, again, remember, since they're publishing quarterly updates with their portfolios, we can then respond accordingly uh, with those portfolio changes. So from a very high level, we're, uh, I would say, about 75, 76% involved in resi, single family rentals and industrial. 7% uh, of our fund is in gaming or net lease, like Vici Properties is a good example. But then you have other sectors that are including lodging, uh, data centers, healthcare, self-storage, lab space. And those are about 3% or lesser each. But from a high level, the top 10 of our constituents represent about 70% of the portfolio. And so again, our top 10 would be a lot of the well-known resi names that you might see in house, including Mid-America, Camden Property Trust, American Homes for Rent, AMH, Invitation Homes, um, IRT Living, but also we have industrial like Prologis, East Group, which is a big Sunbelt industrial REIT, Rexford Industrial, they dominate Los Angeles Industrial. Uh, and then also, like I mentioned, Vici, 
uh, that's our top 10 names. And so, you know, what's different about this than our other fund, besides the fact that there's, um, you know, more sectors, because of that, we're also kind of, this is uh, right now yielding about 3.8%, because again, it is a 50 name basket. You know, mm -hmm. this is bringing a lot of other stuff to the table. And I think one other key to focus on the portfolio, leverage is a very hot topic right now, balance sheet strength. How are these companies able to weather the storm in a rising interest rate? And right now, on average, our constituents are about 26% of debt to gross asset value. So they're so, you know, I would say well protected as far as balance sheet and their leverage that, you know, um, I don't, David, I'd almost that. say under levered, but I don't want to say under levered with interest rates where they are. Right. I mean, it, <laughs> especially if we're going to be getting this potential, what they're calling hawkish pause here in the next several minutes to be determined. Uh, but remember REITs are, you know, as they say, REITs are interest rate sensitive. And I'd like to push back on that. Uh, what I call flawed logic. However, one thing does hold true. When interest rates go up that first time, the REITs get massacred because, again, of that tie into interest rates. But as soon as that first rate cut starts going in place and we start moving the other direction, talk about a sector that you're going to want to be in as a first mover, again, because of uh, the way that the 10-year treasury will move at that point, how the cap stack will change for these guys. But REITs tend to be that first mover when interest rates rise or go down. So, so David, the you know it's an actively managed fund, but at least my impression is it's almost like a beta type strategy in the sense that you're looking through these quarterly filings of the private REITs, and you're essentially trying to recreate or approximate, you know, how they're very, as you said, the very smart managers are investing and and where their holdings are shifting to. So how much of the active management is simply implementing what what these big private REITs are doing versus is there any part of it that this is Armada ETF advisors using you know your own subjective judgment trying to generate alpha on your end? Uh, I would say it's a little bit of both. Uh, we've talked about the management team that we've assembled at Armada and the 150 plus years of experience that our team has, including a retired REIT CEO, retired REIT analyst, and some very well um, portfolio managers, part of the REIT mafia back in the day. But from a different angle, let's use uh, residential as an example. Remember, House has 25 residential REITs inside that portfolio. We're looking at the top 10 of um, PRVT, and we have... Um, uh, six of those names in that portfolio. So to answer your question, yes, there is some Armada sweet sauce that's involved in this because mm -hmm. if we have 15 apartment REITs to choose from in that portfolio, it's how do we want to exactly you know allocate that. Um, I think a lot of it also plays into you know geography. Where you know I would say 60% Sunbelt. Uh, balance coming from the coast with some, you know, good exposure uh, in the Midwest and in the mountain states. But from a from a interesting side note, we talked about how bad the New York office situation was just a couple of minutes ago. Mm -hmm. But on the other end of the spectrum, the New York rental market, the New York residential market is one of the hottest markets in the country right now. And so it's interesting that apartments are flying off the books, but yet the office domino hasn't fallen yet. And so I was chatting with somebody just in New York briefly who, who was talking about the story. And they're like, look, I just moved into a new place. The problem is my bed touches three of the four walls in my apartment. 
I can't work in this place. I can't do a work from home situation in this. <laughs> yeah. And so they're like, I'm getting the heck out of Dodge and going back to the office building. And so I think, again, this is my opinion, but as the apartments and the properties fill up in New York City, I think that's the first domino to fall. Then you move them back into the office buildings, whether you put in secluded workspaces from a company like Pillar Booth out of Chicago, which is working with a lot of these um, office and residential landlords and their tenants to try to, again, you know, thinking about that work from home, COVID safety protocols, but trying to offer tenant amenities that will draw your employees back to the office. And then let's say eventually that office never picks up. Well, then what happens? Well, now New York Street retail is going to come back. The office building is filled up. We may as well have the amenities and the retail around it to support all of those employees. And it's going to take time for all that to happen. But, you know, again, looking at New York and the coastal markets, you know, we are seeing some of a shift back towards some of those markets. Uh, Talk about San Francisco and Seattle and you know, we see all sorts of stories about what's happening in San Francisco, but there's pockets of San Francisco where the rental market is very strong. In the same breath, there's pockets of San Francisco where the landlord's having to offer a couple of weeks of uh, concessions to be able to get people in the doors. And so I think it really, did, again, it's just like anything with a real estate, location, 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 I think plays into it. We're trying to focus on that same thing. We're looking at these, again, these uh, private REIT guys have assembled great portfolios in great markets at the intersection of Maine and Maine. You know, again, they were paying top mm-hmm. dollar for these assets. And if we can do the exact same thing using publicly traded REITs and earn a, you know, earn a regular dividend off of this that gets passed through to shareholders of earned income, well, again, this, it could be an attractive option so that as, let's say, this private vehicles paid the dividends out, you know, those dividends could be used to potentially buy our public vehicle as a complement. Yeah. And, and David, the interesting thing to me is, um, well, first of all, I should say, you know, we cover the alt space here. I cover so much private equity real estate on the show and we do a wealth channel. And at, at our investor shows, a lot of the sponsors who are presenting segments are in very niche, niche, you know, um, uh, very specific segments, you know, even even in private real estate with very unique strategies that you're never going to find at like a Blackstone or anything. Whereas PRVT, your new ETF, that really is going head to head with the very biggest private REITs. And yet, you know, you're 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 complimenting them, which I respect. I, I think you're just being honest and transparent. They have high quality management teams. They know what they're doing. They have scale. They have research team so you're very much complimenting them but and and in a way i think prvt it's it's riding their coattails i don't mean that in a bad way i mean that i mean that as a as a compliment right andy you've, you've heard that expression imitations the sincerest form of flattery so again we are i, I want to emphasize we don't own the private reits in the vehicle we just own the publicly traded reits that own their properties or you know operate or develop their properties um, let's use let's use VG as an example. As you know, Blackstone had a big exposure to Las Vegas. They owned a bunch of the casinos, and they wound up selling those assets to VG Gaming. And VG owns the ground underneath which those properties sit, right? And so, when you think about the best locations, the best asset types, 
again, why not try to bring that portfolio to all investors? You talked about the ETF wrapper before. And what's interesting is if you pull up the largest REIT ETFs that are out there, the VNQs, the IYRs, the SCHHs, uh, you name it, and you put the portfolios next to each other, they're all pretty much the same. You're, you're literally, because again, everything is basically passive, market cap weighted. We're going to take right. the biggest of the biggest, and here's what it looks like. We're anything but that. With House, our other fund, remember, we were trying to focus on where the people are going and which of those residential REITs benefited from that. Hopefully focusing on those target markets that are generating the most amount of rental income, which would hopefully translate to the highest dividend income. Private's a little bit different. We're assembling a high-class portfolio of S&P mid-cap four uh, and S&P 500 names. The, you know what it takes to get into the S&P five to the S&P indices in itself. These guys trade hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of shares a day of liquidity. So the underlying constituents are highly liquid, and we're just putting together, like I said, a wrapper that really matches what these guys have been operating for several years. But again, we're just bringing it at current market valuations so that all investors could hopefully play into the recovery of the long-term fundamentals of the REIT industry. Well, as you mentioned, better valuations, you know, because these under the, the REITs that your ETF is holding are trading, a, you know, the assets are trading at a discount, but also a lower expense structure. I mean, You've been very uh, uh, polite and you know complimentary towards these private REITs, but David, I kind of want you to throw the gauntlet down. I mean, how how high of a hurdle? I, I guess if I'm in your seat, I'm thinking, you know, I don't even have to perform as as well, right? Because the expense structure, the efficiency of this wrapper is so much lower. It's almost like the onus would be on them to outperform to to generate such alpha to to generate the higher cost structure and to generate the premium at which they're trading am, am i am i am i seeing this the right way or am i here's, all mixed up here's David? how here's how i'll phrase it because I, I think i briefly touched on it earlier right now if we use b read as the example i think they're trading at around a four two gross asset value currently their yield on cost of their assets that they acquired was around a sub 4% cap. If you use our cap rate that we've assigned to our portfolio of around 5.7, B REITs NAV would go from call it 1459, 1460-ish to around $8 or less. And the reason I mentioned this is that we wow. talked about we talked about the gating issues before, right? Yeah. Well, if they're having problems filling, you know, filling the liquidity requests, and the investor suddenly gets their statement next month and they see that their NAV has hypothetically declined from fourteen sixty to eight dollars a share, they're probably going to be calling their advisor and wanting to press the sell button, and that would mean then that the queue would grow even longer. Than what's already in place but you know what well, david you're right but isn't the way that it's currently set up and i'm bad at math so you know uh, uh bear with me if they keep this nab where it is the investors who do sell or do get to sell now they're sort of selling they get to sell at the premium isn't it leaving everyone who's left worse off because not only they're they're still in the fund, but now they're forced to 
you know, allow the other investors to sell it. What I would argue might be a artificially high let me, price. Let me ask your question with another question back to you. You probably saw the deal that was worked between B REIT and the University of California Regents a few months ago, where UC put in several billion dollars into the vehicle uh, and got an 11%, I think it was 11 and a quarter percent guaranteed return, mm-hmm. uh, billion dollar backstop by B REIT, backstop, excuse me, by B REIT. You know, there was, um, it was almost like the Warren Buffett sweetheart deal that was worked yep. out. So let me ask you a question. If you're high net worth investor in Palm Beach, Florida, that has a few million dollars in B-REIT, and you read that Blackstone worked out this deal with University of California, aren't you saying to yourself, boy, I'd like to get those, ter- the, those terms of deals to myself as well. I would love to have them backstop my money. I would love to get a guaranteed hurdle type stuff. And so the average investor got shut out of the deal that California was able to work for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that... You know, one thing that's important and we've talked about is you got to do your homework. You got to know what's under the hood of the car. And with these vehicles, one thing that's, you know, of note, they all, they will say, we've disclosed this. It's in our prospectus. We disclose our redemption policies and how things work. I don't know how good your eyes are. You see me wearing glasses. If you have time to read, you know, a book of a prospectus in a four point font with a magnifying glass, really trying to read all those footnotes and what that redemption window is. David, can I, can I go back to my half pregnant analogy? Yeah, I told you I was half pregnant. It was on page 93 in a six point font. So if you didn't read that, that's your problem. Well, we don't need to, uh, I I guess I should say, I don't need to beat up on B read all episode. No. Uh, And and again, that's why, that's why I kept saying like, these are, you know, again, the, the, Companies have built great portfolios and everything. The problem is that at current market valuations, there could be better options for investors to take advantage. Well, of. David, totally. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you there. I know. I know. Being, uh, you know, part of the ownership of Armada ETF Advisors, there's you're limited in what you can say. But I mean, I can say it. The the case for BREIT right now as an investor. It's very, very weak. Why would you invest in something at a premium when you can get essentially very similar assets at a steep discount? It doesn't make any sense. And uh, I don't want to pick on anybody, any asset manager in the space, but I think the Blackstones of the world, these big giants, they can take it, right? They're going to be okay, right? They're not going to go bankrupt because I you know, put my two cents in. It's, it's not a great deal for investors. And and so whether you're looking at smaller, more boutique alternative investment funds, you know, private placements, or now I think there are ETFs available, they're just better value. And like you said, you have to do your research, you have to see what's under the hood. And uh, you know, all investment vehicles, all all offerings, they're gonna have that prospectus. There's probably gonna be, you know, eight point font, 73 pages, or whatever. The cool thing with your ETF. Uh, or, or uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Everybody gets the same deal, right? There's no, uh, you know, no, no one gets to call in and get a a, a different expense ratio or or whatever. It's it's basically you invest in an ETF. You know, this is how it works. 
No, I bought I bought a little bit of stock on our uh, after we opened yesterday, and I paid the expense the same expense ratio as anybody else. <laughs> so, I did not yeah. get free stock yesterday or anything like that. You know, and I want to emphasize that ETFs are not going away. As we know, ETFs continue to grow just dramatically year over year over year. And one thing that all investors need to realize is that mutual funds are by and large going to be going away. If you own mutual mm -hmm. funds and I still own mutual funds, those mutual funds are going to convert to ETFs. And if even the, parent, the big, even the big index funds. Oh yeah, Vanguard. The Vanguard mutual funds are, mm -hmm. in my opinion, they're absolutely going to convert over to ETFs eventually. There's no question about it. Um, especially, you know, especially for some of these guys, it's the same portfolio. Why am I running a mutual fund in an, an ETF? Is just basically a publicly traded mutual fund. That's what I call it. Mm -hmm. And so. You know, I do think that the mutual fund wrapper is eventually going to go off into the sunset, which means we're going to see a lot more ETFs come to market. You know, th th there's a joke that there's an ETF for everything. If you have an idea, chances are there's already out, there's already an ETF out there that covers it. Um, it's a huge, huge universe. But the cool thing is that, again, there's no layered fees. They're highly liquid. With the way that the ETF process works, it's called the creation redemption process. You're an investor. You want to put a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million into an ETF. Through back office channels and your brokerage firm, an issuer can create new shares of stock without moving the tape. You know about all of this, Andy, how it all works. And mostly, so, mostly. Yeah, it gets a little just, complicated for yeah, me. Again, so, yeah, again, okay, because it's, 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 again, it all happens through back office channels. Sure. You the money, they give you units, and here's how it works. Or you can work with your broker who works with the market maker to try to, you know, arrange the trade on the tape. It's $10 by 10.05. I'll pay 10.02 for 100,000 shares. You could fill it at 10.04. Boom, the trade gets done. So, I mean, it's just like negotiating a trade. But that's the cool thing. And again, if you like what they're doing, you can deploy more and more and more. And if you don't like what they're doing and you want to go off and try Global X's data center ETF versus Pacer's data center ETF, you hit the sell button, you get your proceeds, you press the buy button, you buy it in, boom, it's done. It happens all, you know, snap, snap, snap. It's very quick. That's the cool thing about stocks in the market. It's yeah, no, I, I, I will say, David, if you're going to be trading in and out of stuff, you know, Sometimes things can happen. Sometimes you are at a disadvantage if you're an individual little guy, but we're talking big picture. We're talking investors. You can buy ETFs, put in a limit order. You can do just fine. I was just going to say, Andy, I was going to give everybody listening to this the, the smartest piece of advice you could ever give them. Never trade ETFs with a market order. Never, ever, 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 ever use a market order to buy ETFs. Even if you're buying SPY and it trades 25 million shares a day, never put a market order in. And here's the reason why. The Fed just announced interest rate decision, right? Because I've been talking to you, I, I have to say, I haven't seen what the announcement is. I'm guessing it was, a, a, a you know, again, a hawkish pause as they were talking about. Yeah, pause is rate hike, but signals more tightening to come. The okay. hawkish pause, there you go. But- Let's say the market reacted at uh, 2002 right after that announcement comes up. You put that market order in for SPY, and that SPY order goes like this. It's, mm -hmm. It spikes on the news. Well, you just gave all that money to the market maker, basically, or you gave that to the market versus you digging what I call digging your heels in. Stand your ground. 
I'm a buyer at X. I'm a seller at Y. I'm mm -hmm. not breaking ground. So I always recommend, always, always, even if it's for, even if you're a very, very small retail investor and you're only buying 10 shares of something, always use a limit order. Always try to get the best price that you can in your pocket. Uh, totally. Uh, and and that, I, I would agree if there's one golden rule of ETF, certainly you would know it. And I agree. That is the number one rule. And, and then I have to say, you know, once you're in an ETF, once you're out of it while holding it, you know, just because they are liquid intraday, you can still use ETFs with a buy and hold strategy. Trust me, ask me how I know that because I do that myself with my own portfolio. So they're just a very cost efficient vehicle. And But there's also products that are out there that are not geared towards the buy and hold strategy. I, I mean, sure. I do want to caution that, you know, single stock ETFs, 2X, 3X lever. Yeah, products, direction. Yeah. All those that are stuff. not those are not geared towards buy and hold type play. So, you know, I, I always again, I don't want to knock any advisor. I don't want to knock any investor. But if somebody is telling you you got to buy this fund because of do your own homework. A hundred percent. Why do I need to be buying a 3X levered inverse ETF if the market's going up? Yep, it, it, absolutely. I mean, it, it it doesn't matter what the vehicle is, what the wrapper is. You always have to do your due diligence. And I, I mean, I think our audience on this show understands that. I just, as as a guy who normally covers the illiquid alts beat, I also have to give credit where credit is due. And it's I still love the ETF structure. I always will. Your point, uh, you know, it seems like the whole world is going ETF. I don't think that's true, but even mutual funds, you know, gradually converting to ETFs and so on. So, but it's, again, it's, it also goes back to B read again with that portfolio that they've assembled. Same thing, you know, if you're buying an ETF that's assembled of tech movers and you're trusting that management team to put the best tech movers out there as the high part of that basket, you know, you want to know what's under the hood of the car. And it's the same thing about buying BREIT. You know, advisors knew, like us, we know that, again, I, I keep complimenting them because, as I mentioned, imitation is sincerest form of flattery. They mm -hmm. have built great portfolios. They did, you know, have great management. They have great management teams. They know this stuff. They know a lot more, like I said, than the average investor does, that if they choose to bump up their weighting in industrial, clearly they know something that the average guy doesn't, especially like if, if, L, if their LA exposure, let's say, jumps up dramatically, well, then that means that, hypothetically, the Port of LA standoff has worked its way through. There is no more trade gap issues anymore. It, the ships are no longer sitting at the port. They're wait, they're, they can finally come in and offload. Okay, we need to up our ante on Rexford now. So it's almost you just we can just sort of trust that they're in the know. Things that maybe you and I aren't, especially I'm not in the know. We can kind of trust that because they have very good management. But I have to say, the most beautiful asset in the world, you know, Class A, whatever still comes down the price because the best asset in the world, if I pay too much, it's a bad investment. Mediocre asset, if I buy it at a huge discount, can be a fantastic investment. So costs matter. I think that's part of the whole underlying thesis of ETFs. David, that's why I love you, your company, Armada ETF Advisors. This ETF, I think PRVT is dynamite. I think our audience definitely give it a look if you're investing in private REITs, I think at a minimum, it's worth a look. So I'm going to make sure to link to the press release, of course, Armada's website. I also want to link to the Yahoo Finance uh, page. You know, The ticker page has a lot of data. Sometimes it might take a couple of days or a little while for all those fields to um, 
to percolate, to fill in. David, in the meantime, where can our audience of high net worth investors and family offices go to learn more about this brand new ETF? First of all, Andy, thank you so much for this. This is great. I love talking to you and I could, I could do this for hours on end. This is just fantastic. Um, our website is Armada, A-R-M-A-D-A, ETFs.com, Armada ETFs. On there, you can learn about House, the residential REIT ETF, as well as our new fund, the private real estate strategy via liquid REITs ETF. There's a whole story to that as well, why it's named that. Uh, but there uh, you could find um, our investment case, fact sheet, uh, information about our thesis, but also contact me directly, David Auerbach, dauerbach at armadaetfs.com. We're here to talk about this. We're here to educate if you have questions about our thesis, what we're thinking, uh, we're happy to share that all, all of our thoughts with you. Yeah, and I gotta I gotta plug our audience. Don't hesitate to get in touch with David. He's a super nice guy. And David, I gotta thank you for coming on the show today and giving us the exclusive. Thank you so much. Makes me feel very important to have an exclusive on a new product launch. So thanks again for coming on the show today. Thanks, David. I appreciate it, buddy. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.